I'd like to say a few things this evening <clears throat> in praise of inquiry. And we've been using that word a bit in the discussion groups. And to talk about inquiry is to talk also about learning, understanding, the betrayal of understanding. Before um, we go into it, just want to say that you've all been remarkably quiet and steady. Um, we went through all the sheets yesterday of the interview papers, and a very large number of you are here for the first time, and uh, it's the first time you've sat for so long, and been quiet for so long, etc. And uh, in my own experience, it's unusual for, for there to be so much stillness. Now, I don't know what's going on inside of you. I have some degree. But it's, you're doing a very good job, a very good impersonation. So, and I'll settle for that. Uh, this morning, uh, I don't know if you can remember back that far. You remember a few thousand years ago? There was one point where one person coughed, and then a second person coughed, and then there was another cough from the back of the room, and then a third. And does anyone remember that? Was it only you? Know, yeah. uh, the room was just filled with coughing. I thought there was some secret signal system going on. <laughs> and at one point, I mean, I'm glad I didn't, but I was tempted to say, uh, mixing it with loving kindness, of course. Why don't we all just cough in unison and, and, and just get it over with? Just get it out of our system and settle down. And so I thought that it's going to be an interesting three days. But uh, things did settle down. I'd um, like to ask you to relate to whatever is being said in a somewhat more active way than perhaps you'd like to. Um, we've all worked hard today, and this can be seen or experienced as a kind of uh, break, entertainment period, you know, a short, not a very good one, but a short movie, uh, where you just take it easy and hear a few phrases, perhaps a few Buddhist terms and some encouragement. And you're here, but in a very, very low-key way, just refueling for you know, more sitting and walking after this. I'd like to ask you to try to go into your reserve gas tank and bring the same quality of alertness to what we're doing now, which at the beginning will be mainly me speaking, but then an opportunity for us to all talk, I mean, whoever wants to. to give it your best effort. This is not inferior to sitting. It's also not superior to sitting. It's just what we're doing next. So this is our life right now. So it'd be nice if there's some quality in it. That's all. Okay. Um, inquiry. 
Supposedly, Socrates said that a life unexamined is not a life worth living. It's a pretty extreme statement. A lot of people would be uh, in bad shape. I'd like to talk a bit about the place of inquiry in this practice, and I know many of you are relatively new to Vipassana meditation. One part of it is more obvious, that is uh, calming down, steadying, developing concentration. And often, especially if we're doing a lot of thinking in our life, can be a relief just to pay attention to the breath, even if it's difficult. At least you're not being asked to think or examine or find out. Just sit and follow this one thing and you feel a bit more relaxed. But that's only one aspect of the practice and it's meant to be balanced with inquiry. The real inquiry is fanciful without some level of steadiness, of stability of mind. But the kind of inquiry that I'm mainly pointing towards tonight is not intellectual, although that has its place as well. I'd like to suggest that we uh, talk about inquiry in very practical terms so that it enables us to understand the heart of what we're trying to do here, which is to understand in the service of freedom, to free ourselves from limitation, suffering, unsatisfactoriness in our life. When we think of learning, inquiry, understanding, one of the most obvious forms is one we've been exposed to a good deal of in the school system, as where we accumulate a lot of information and then arrange it in various ways and use the intellect to do all kinds of wonderful things with the information. Perhaps you can call that knowledge as a form of learning. And it's, it's something we accumulate. If we were doing a lot of that, you would have spiral notebooks. You'd be filling the spiral notebooks up. But notice there are no spiral notebooks. I hope not. Spiral tape recorders instead. But anyway, that's not for you to accumulate. Another kind of learning is learning from experience. And we've all heard people talk that way. As, uh, it's one way to gain some understanding. We do something in life. We have a certain experience. And then that experience is itself a guide to future action. The heart of the kind of inquiry and understanding that I'm pointing to tonight, I'd like to try to point to, uh, goes beyond that too. In other words, it's different. Uh, both are valuable, but they're different from what is being suggested. The kind of learning or inquiry has, is a kind that is not it's not accumulated. So you can accumulate information, technical information, knowledge. You can accumulate experience, and then that experience is what you see reality through. 
And if we've had some interesting experiences, it may be a reasonably good guide through for, for future action. But because it happened in the past, it may not be relevant to what's happening right in the moment. So even that kind of experience, as valuable as it is, um, is not what I'm talking about. But it's more a direct perception, an understanding, a standing under. It's intimate. And although words play a part, uh, essentially it's nonverbal. It's not accumulated in that what it is that we learned is, va- is valuable only in that moment, and then it's obsolete. We don't really file it away. It's directly experienced, and that's its value. And often the experience itself is a form of intelligence which directs action in a skillful, humane way. Often it, it's not that it leads to something else, it is it. The seeing and the doing are, are so close or almost identical that we know what to do when the mind is very clear. So it's standing under. It's um, absorbing a fact or something that is, that just is. And to do that, you have to really be simple and open and interested and deal with all kinds of barriers to that, like fear, like thinking that you know. And so it takes somewhat of the childlike quality where you're not embarrassed to admit that you don't know, as children are not, until they learn how to be embarrassed. If they have a question, there's a restlessness because there's something they don't know and they want to know, and there's no embarrassment at all. It's just straightforward. I don't know. What, what do I do? What is this? But we're very strategic in our questioning because images are at stake, etc. Adulthood. Let me be concrete. For me, the practice um, includes an enormous amount of attention to daily life. What, what is called daily life, really, it's all daily life. I mean, this is daily life. There's no place to get away from daily life. But that's one term that's used for, um, let's say, what we've just come from. And all spiritual paths that are worthy of that name are comprehensive. They have to do with our whole life. And so I would suggest that the foundation, one way to look at a, to see a foundation, has to do with the body and with personal integrity. Now, the body is usually not talked about much in Vipassana circles, because what I'm talking about now is not its impermanence, or is using the body as a field to develop wisdom from, seeing it as something else that's impermanent, transient, and all that flows from that. There's no question that Vipassana meditation is directed towards the body from that angle. And you've already seen, we, we pay attention to the body quite a bit, but not on its own terms so much. What I'm talking about now is much more 
commonsensical. That is, the body has needs. It has a certain intelligence. It needs a certain amount of rest, a certain amount of water, a certain amount of air, nutrition. It has to learn how to move itself, or it creates problems. If these are done reasonably well, there's a fairly adequate amount of energy that the, the mind can count on, that the mind can be based on. If these are violated, we're forever tripping up over ourselves. Now, for a while, it's puzzled me why there's been such a disregard of the whole notion of health in Vipassana. And since there's so much attention to the body, and I think it has a lot to do with the rather selective way in which the body is viewed as a field of impermanence, as a field of suffering, but not in its own right. Also, if you read the ancient texts, there's clearly a concern with attachment to the body, which sounds reasonable. It certainly is for me. And a, a real concern, almost a fear, that if we start to take the body too seriously, we'll get attached to it, there'll be vanity, uh, indulgence, and we'll get lost in it, and, and all the spiritual goals will be the casualty. It's not unique to Buddhism. A lot of religions seem to have mixed emotions about the body in terms of sexuality, in terms of care of the body, but it's not universal either. Um, but if you read the ancient, in ancient times, at the times of the Buddha, uh, I can only imaginatively recreate what uh, I sense went on there. The diet was superior to what we had. A India was a very prosperous country. The soil was probably what we would call organic, and very fertile. That means the the food had real nourishment. People walked a lot. There was a lot of exercise. Water was pure and clean. Air was clean. Uh, the rules set up in the community uh, were very healthy guidelines to not overeat. And so even without being self-conscious, I think that they had a, he a healthier life than we do. We have to invent all kinds of new you know, holistic health and new stores and magazines and everything to kind of uh, remind us about this and compensate with uh, food supplements for what's lacking in the food. So it, I wouldn't be surprised if the overall health of the yogis at that time was at a high level just naturally, just by the, the kind of life that was lived, vigorous, physically, etc. But that isn't our situation. We're more sedentary, uh, and the air and water, food, has all been uh, damaged severely. So what I'd like to suggest is that inquiry, one way in which inquiry, that what we've been learning, how to pay attention, can be very useful and in the service of spiritual ends, is by allowing that awareness to work in your life. And, some of that was suggested in just a few comments about eating. If you eat and pay attention, that is, as you're eating, allow yourself to register, allow the body to be heard. 
the body will give off signals in terms of sensations as to how food is being received, what kinds of food it likes, what kinds of food it doesn't like, what's heavy, what's an irritant. Now, sometimes, as we know, the taste and the consequences of that which we've eaten because of taste are not aligned. And so we'll eat things uh, that taste good or because we have good ideas about them. And then we pay for it later. If you start to pay attention while you're eating, you can learn from the body. This is inquiry to me. The body will teach you in an ongoing way. It will give you guidelines. Not that, it, that you can't use uh, professional help and read. That, that's wonderful, too. But as you get to know your own body, you can even make better use of, of professional help because you know what questions to ask. Uh, you can tell whether something that's been given to you is really helping you or just uh, all the magazines are saying it's good and so you start saying it's good, not even knowing if it's good. So you have an accurate index. As you start to eat, you can see the effect of food, different foods on the mind. And here we're starting to come closer, if some of you are getting bored, thinking, what is this, a gym class or something? Bear with me. It, has, it will eventually get to something that perhaps you're more interested in. When you start to pay attention to the kinds of food and the amount of food that you take in, and also pay attention to the qualities of mind that come about shortly thereafter, you'll see that there's a strong relationship. It's unmistakable. Certain kinds of foods agitate the mind and body. Certain kinds of foods make the mind heavy and dull. Certain kinds of foods contribute to the mind being energetic, help the nervous system be strong. You need a strong nervous system to meditate. We're releasing very subtle energy. Some years ago, a long time ago, I had a very wonderful Indian teacher named Shivananda Saraswati, who um, was traveling by Greyhound bus around the United States, and he was 85 years old. And I had the good fortune to run into him, and, and I traveled with him for a number of months. I just went wherever he did, and we stayed together, and I just watched how he lived. And he gave me a great gift. What he taught me was that if you take reasonable care of the body, and he wasn't a fanatic, much of what he did was in range of probably everyone in this room. He said, if you take reasonable care of the body, you can have a relatively, and this is important for Buddhists to hear, a relatively painless old age. And it doesn't end there. The relatively painless old age is valuable because, as he put it, his deepest spiritual realizations came between the ages of 70 and currently, at age 85. And the reason it was possible is that he was in good shape, reasonably. He was traveling all night on Greyhound buses and went with very little sleep and was very much of a contemplative, very much involved in the kinds of things we were doing. And so all it takes is a little bit of extra attention and care. It's not a question of being overindulged or vain or anything of that sort. It's just a slight bit more of attention. We're already developing the awareness. It's there. But it's more a matter of not betraying the understanding. That is, the information often comes to us. And time and time again, we betray the body. 
it's not limited to the body. I think we have a difficult time living our understanding, often. So I would encourage you to use this practice in a small way to start to examine how you live. Now we move from the body to personal integrity, and this is clearly very recognized in the Buddhist path, Sila, S-I-L-A, or sometimes translated as morality or um, virtue. But I think for our age, personal integrity, those other terms are a little bit quaint and smack of Sunday school. And it has to do with, once again, examining our life in the areas of speech. How do we use verbal energy? Lying, speaking in ways which create disharmony, wasting energy with what are sometimes called in the text idle chatter, harsh communication which hurts people, which has consequences. We hurt people, we get hurt back. We poison the atmosphere, psychological atmosphere. And so a certain amount of attention is merited to how we use verbal energy. It's just an application of what we're already doing. Begin to listen to what comes out of the mouth when these lips start flapping, the sounds start getting engineered into words. Just what are we doing? What's happening? Are we saying what we mean? What what is our intention when we say a certain thing? What are we trying to accomplish? What does it accomplish? What is the impact on others? We move from speech to areas of action, like not harming on many levels, but just in the most obvious way, uh, not harming, not killing, not stealing, and a difficult one, uh, the use or not the misuse of sexual energy. The ancients were seemed to be mainly concerned with uh, protecting the marital situation. And in it, if you read the text, it's clear that women are seen as mischievous and uh, potentially dangerous for distracting men from going to enlightenment. So they have to be watched. But I think in this time period, understanding sexual energy goes beyond marriage, just by the way which many of us live, and has to be looked at with fresh eyes. Just how do we use sexual energy if we can for a moment seeing it as something neutral? Perhaps on the one extreme, uh, asceticism, complete abstention from it. On the other extreme, um, tremendous indulgence in it, pornography. I'm not suggesting Tantra, which is also useful, I'm sure. I'm not trained in it, so I don't know it. But it's more in continuity with our ordinary practice. It's simply paying attention and learning from what happens. Absorbing the actuality of what happens 
uh, in situations where sexual energy is involved. And with everything else, with the use of money, speech. So the inquiry is nonverbal attention. And if you like, try this sometimes. Whenever you find yourself suffering or very unhappy, you can begin it with words, but eventually I don't think you'll need words. Just ask yourself, why am I suffering right now? And then listen. Don't try to think it out. Then just be still and let the suffering reveal itself. Sometimes it's very obvious. Very often I found. The reason you're suffering, see that? It's fire. Oh, I see. It's hot. You put your hand in it and therefore you got burned. Oh, I see. A lot of the learning that can come in meditation is of that nature. Getting burned and understanding that you got burned. Okay, now here, the word understanding I think needs to be clarified a little. It could, it ranges from common sense understanding of that word understanding to what you might call meditative depth. Maybe we can make that a bit more clear. And this kind of depth can be directed towards anything. As the awareness becomes more sensitive, as we become more intimate with our own experience, it becomes harder and harder to do certain things. I don't know if any of you have noticed that, you've seen that. Uh, You can't do certain things. It's not that you have to use your will to not do them. It becomes so obvious that they're destructive and useless and as a result, uninteresting. Awareness seems to have one function, perhaps, of setting things right. But that means that there's, what I'm talking about now, there's a certain clarity that has perhaps infinite depth. Or the same phenomena could be experienced in a deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper way as we become deeper. And so a small gesture can be seen for what it is. It could be quite cruel and cutting, and we become incapable of doing it. Not because of any moral code, but because of understanding, because we really experience what it does to us if we inflict it on someone, and we see what it does to someone else, the person who's who's been hurt by it. Same with diet. As the meditative depth becomes more established, Uh, we're just more alive, we're more sensitive to what's happening, whatever it is. Okay, so these areas of personal integrity, and I would add, which is, you probably won't find in too many, in any Vipassana books, but which I feel is useful in that if we don't pay attention to the body, at least to some degree, It only boomerangs. We wind up spending all our time dealing with our sickness. And that's not the point at all. If the body is reasonably cared for, if our personal life is reasonably in order, there's a foundation and a possibility for insight, for understanding, for wisdom. If those realms are not taken care of, can you see how no matter, you can sit for two million years, how nothing's going to happen? because we keep undoing everything that we're accomplishing in quotes in the sitting meditation, which we uh, feature 
It's the star of the show sitting. And so the ancient Buddhist texts are very clear on that, that as the uh, personal integrity is the ground on which the yogi stands. If personal integrity is problematic, you can just imagine. I remember one time uh, someone at a Zen center that I used to practice at was involved in all kinds of illegal things. He was wanted by the police. He was Canadian, was concerned about being in this country illegally. Uh, I think he was dealing in dope. There were a whole bunch of things. And he was constantly worried, and he couldn't understand why he had such a hard time following the breath. I mean, he fell off his cushion once. <laughs> he was concerned about whether the police were going to break the door down any minute. How, how in the world is he going to follow the breath or do anything else? So it's, again, common sense. It's something that, that it's not following an authority. It's not being good boys and good girls. In other words, don't lie, don't steal, don't kill. This is not Sunday school I'm talking about. It's not um, following some absolute dictum from an external authority. It's more in the, in the realm of training rules, guidelines, pointers to actual awareness and experience, which reveal to us the self-evident value of what it is we're doing. It's our responsibility to take these on if we feel that there's some sense to it. Say, for example, for example, examining our speech. But then I feel the real lasting development comes not from blindly or mechanically following a moral code, in other words, I won't lie out of will, but from understanding, from seeing what lying does, the cost of it to you and to others, so that you don't lie out of intelligence. It comes the ground out of which the end of lying comes, or at least minimizing it. It comes out of almost scientific lawfulness in the universe. You really, it's not a good way to live. And it's not a, a piety uh, to be preached. It makes sense. Okay, if these realms are in order, or reasonably in order, uh, the tradi traditional progression is to move to areas of wisdom. with a strong foundation that is uh, a reasonable amount of energy, a life that's not overly complicated, we can then begin to look at issues like impermanence, like the unsatisfactoriness of human existence, like personal identity. What does it mean to be a human? The self, notions of that sort, which are uh, at the core of Buddhist teaching and a, a central in Vipassana work. Let's just take impermanence for a moment. <coughs> the Buddha pointed out that there were three characteristics basic to existence, and one of them was impermanence. So they're the marks by which existence could be recognized. Just as, let's say, you have a friend you can recognize them because there's something, their features are a certain way, which distinguishes them from other humans, other beings. One of the marks of existence is that it's transient. It keeps changing. No matter what level you look at, it's true. Whole civilizations, microscopic. Our mood in the last two minutes, 
you tell me, wherever we look, wherever we, and the looker itself, it's just an ocean of impermanence. Now, all cultures have known this. Probably, I, I mean, we could take a poll, but I'm pretty sure everyone in the room sees this, understands that uh, the most dramatic confirmation of this is that we're impermanent. Everyone in this room will die without exception. No exemptions on that one, no matter what. There's no way out of that one. But that's just part of a general process. Everything is appearing and disappearing at a staggering rate. And as our, well, if that seems true to you, if that's satisfactory to your intellect, you've read about it, no doubt, and we've all experienced it. It's all around us. And it can be interesting, and it can have some influence in your life. But the kind of understanding that I'm talking about, the direct perception of impermanence, or let's say meditative depth, has to do with the concrete, tangible experience of actual moments of impermanence over an extended period of time. It's something like this. You see an in-breath. The in-breath has a beginning. It has an end. There's an out-breath. It has a beginning. It has an end. A thought suddenly comes into the mind and then it's gone. Your ankle hurts, then it doesn't hurt. You like being here, and suddenly that's over. It's like a cloud formation. It's gone. You don't like being here. And in the practice, the seeing, really, um, the best I can do is that you absorb that fact. You absorb it. It's not simply seen sort of in a surface way but it becomes part of you. It's like digesting. It's like chewing food. Chewing something, assimilating it, it becomes part of your being. I would call that understanding. And that has perhaps an unlimited range of development. So that the meditative life, in, in terms of wisdom, has to do regarding impermanence with a sustained openness to that process. Seeing it, feeling it, until the mind finally gets it. Oh, I see. It's all impermanent. Yeah, that's what the Buddha's been trying to tell us for the last 20 years. But I understood that 20 years ago. But did you? Is there any difference between reading a very wonderful text about it or having some speaker talk about it? And when you personally in a very intimate way, start to experience moment after moment, particularly as the mind becomes more still, that there's nothing solid to hold on to, including that which wants to do the holding. Now, that, it seems, that is understanding that has real power to transform a person. And so now we're moving with inquiry We're looking and trying to understand, what is this? What is this? Whatever it is, a feeling, a thought, a sound that just ended. I just heard. And then that can be applied and moved. We move to the area of unsatisfactoriness that's very 
that's dealt with in a very comprehensive way in Buddhist teaching. Very briefly, because I think the main point is uh, the kind of understanding that I'm talking about. It's intimate and personal. So I'll be brief about the remaining two um, features of existence, because I'd really like to hear if there's anything on your mind. The unsatisfactoriness, or dukkha, some of you have seen that word. It's sometimes called suffering, but it's broader than suffering. It includes suffering, like physical pain, sickness, emotional pain, but it also includes more subtle um, kinds of dissatisfactoriness or unsatisfactoriness in life, like that everything is changing. Just that alone, that no matter what it is, it keeps changing. Or the very fragile and unknown, we know we're going to die, but we don't know when a kind of existential uh, problem that all humans have. No matter, we can be totally psychoanalyzed and eat all that good food I talked about and do lots of yoga and deep breathing and get certified by all kinds of teachers, and yet there still remains that fact we're going to die, each one of us. We know it and we don't know when. Is that a bad joke that's being played on us? The animals are going to die, but they don't know about it. I don't think, I don't know. And it's called a noble truth of suffering. And one of the reasons I think that it is uh, a noble truth is that it has to do with this understanding of suffering. That is, to really be willing to face your own suffering, my own suffering, all of us, every creature. To really be willing to inquire into that openly is ennobling. To do that is ennobling. Now, our tendency is to run away from it, to compensate, to do all kinds of things. But to turn, to shift the direction so that you face it squarely. Now, if you can backtrack, what we've been doing is a momentum picking up. If we're doing some work with our body and having a reasonable amount of energy and our uh, personal integrity is starting to become less complicated, less an issue, it's not problematic, That means there's more energy available, it's coherent. Perhaps it can be directed towards examining issues which take a lot of energy. One definition of the religious mind is a mind that aggregates energy for the purposes of ascertaining ultimate significance of life. In other words, bringing, collecting that energy for that ultimate inquiry is what it means to be here in the first place, to be human. And so we need all the help that we can get. Everything going in the same direction to, pick, to develop a momentum. If we can look at our suffering, it's ennobling. Personally, I have found it's ennobling in a way that I don't think anything else can be. I don't think a therapist can give it to us, or a lover, or a husband, or a wife, or the Buddha. Uh, When a human being faces themselves, and no matter how difficult it may be, whatever it is that you'd rather not face, but if you do it, and gently and slowly begin to learn what it is, why it's there, what your possibilities are, 
even if perhaps there are no possibilities or very few, somehow you come away from it feeling deeper or more full as a human being. Whereas every time we dodge and hide and conceal and play games, it's demeaning. We don't allow ourselves to feel how demeaning it is much of the time, but from time to time it surfaces. And we can hardly stand it. Or is that just me? Then we move on to the third aspect of existence, and the one that is the most confusing for, for most of us, no self, anatta, which doesn't mean that we're a zero, but what is suggested is that there isn't a, an inherent self. There isn't an inherent identity that you can point to and say, there I am. So inquiry on that level is a direct looking at personal identity. What is a self? This is not a rarefied, esoteric, uh, only reserved for philosophy seminars kind of question. It couldn't be more practical, and we don't treat it that way. We try to improve the self. There's an enormous amount of self-improvement going on in our society right now. But, But that which is trying to improve itself is the problem. And yet a certain level of self-improvement is needed to go on with this kind of inquiry because it's arduous. In my own case, I find it, of the three, the most interesting now, for a number of years impermanence is what held my attention a lot. But now it's the no-self, the anatta. And things changed for me a few years ago regarding it when I became honest about it in a moment, a rare moment of honesty, I was able to admit that I don't care if the Buddha said this and all the books say it, I feel that there's a coherent, damn it, I am a self. I mean, just the ego felt like it was a rock. And it felt that I don't care, they're all wrong, that's just stupid. What do you mean there's no self? I'm filled with myself. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow, uh, getting that out of my system uh, brought me to just be looking at that, looking at the seeming solidity, the seeming uh, coherence, homogeneity of it, of this entity. And of course, it didn't stand the test. You know, it just as soon as I could allow that to be admitted, then it was possible for the other to come in. Uh, that it was just a bunch of thoughts and feelings, often contradictory, inconsistent, flying by a mile a minute, and I couldn't, whatever it was, it was I couldn't hold on to it. And I started to see the mind uh, endlessly describing itself. I'm a this or I'm a that, almost feverishly, you know, they're just seizing upon anything to, as a basis for, I'm this, I'm that, almost an addiction. Uh, as it needed to always make up something about itself. Why was it working so hard? What was it trying to prove? I mean, if it was really so solid, what's all the fuss? Why is it so concerned about the slightest, you know, someone doesn't say hi to you and the whole day is destroyed? Why, we, why is it so fragile? 
Okay. Um, Did any of you learn anything so far in the last couple of days? Of this order of kind of direct, intimate, concrete, tangible, palpable, very practical. You brought it, you saw it, you put your hand in the fire, you got burned. I neglected one, excuse me, let me backtrack, just to put it on our minds. The betrayal of understanding, I've been talking about understanding, very often we understand things and it seems we don't live our understanding. And that perhaps is one of the most important areas of inquiry. That is to look at why don't I live what I know? For example, in the discussion groups today, and this is very common in meditative groups, people who say they value meditation, they've seen its value, love meditation, all of that, and yet are unable to really do it wholeheartedly, as wholeheartedly as they would like to, and are doing many other things which are not valued, which may even be destructive. In other words, there is understanding of that, and an inability to to live that, to live the understanding, a kind of betrayal, self-betrayal, which we all seem to do, perhaps out of fear, or the complications that um, understanding often leads to action that perhaps shatters ways of living that are been going on for quite a while. Anyway, just to close that off, have any of you learned anything? It's a serious question. I'd like to say a few words tonight about <clears throat> free attention. This will <clears throat> excuse me. This is the third stage in the meditation instructions for those of you who started out Friday night. Seems like a long time ago. Uh, if we've been moving, and some of you came Sunday, many of you, so. We've been leading up to this. Uh, not that you have to do this for the remainder of the retreat, or this is the uh, quintessence of meditation, although some feel it is. Probably my own bias is that it is. But to give you a taste of it, and then for you to work as you see fit. Free attention is sometimes called choiceless awareness, comprehensive attention, all-inclusive attention, just sitting, pure witnessing, To go back over what we've been doing so we have a context for what uh, we'll develop tonight. If you recall, we started off with the breath. We picked one thing out of all the possibilities in the universe, just the breath. And whenever attention moved from the breath, we would very gently come back to the breath. Is that familiar? If it isn't, you're in big trouble. I'm in big trouble, too. 
So we had one object and we kept coming back to it. And then we opened the field of attention up to allow for the possibility that attention would move from that object, which as we know it does. And then what attention moves to itself becomes the object of meditation. So that if your mind leaves the breath and goes to some part of the body that is um, vivid, painful, that isn't a disruption as it was with the first set of instructions. That isn't a distraction. It's just the next meditation object. It's not inferior or superior to the breath. And if you're having a hard time with that, getting lost in it, you go back to the breath a little bit earlier. If not, stay with it during the life of that next object, as long as it's stronger than the breath, till it leaves. In both of these, we're learning some important things, important qualities of being developed. One is just to be able to place our attention someplace and to keep it there. Also, in keeping it there, noticing what's happening, watching carefully, as we've been able to place our attention on the breath or another object. And then we're also able to discern increasingly more refinement in the behavior of what's going on in where our attention is. The other thing that we're learning is the beginnings of the art of allowing, of non-doing, non-interfering. And that's a very profound and important one, one approach to Dharma that's uh, central. And that's what we'll be getting into uh, in, this next, in the next few moments. That meant, in terms of the breath, allowing the breath to go its own way. You recall, we're not trying to even out the breath or smooth it out, make it longer or shorter, less bumpy, nothing. We just let the breath do all the work, not control it. And perhaps from time to time you see that in spite of that, we do control the breath. In fact, as your practice deepens, you start to see that what you thought was not controlling the breath was. We're self-conscious, we're goal-oriented, we want to become super-duper meditators, and so we're helping the, the breath along, even though it needs no help. But we're beginning to learn to just allow, to just let the breath follow its own nature. And it's a very important lesson. In order to do that, it means we have to let go of perhaps a lifetime of calculation, scheming, engineering, orchestration, manipulation, goal-directedness, and words like that. In other words, there's a controller. Something that is controlling something in order to get somewhere. And that controller, of course, has the name me, I. You could call it ego, if you like or self-cherishing. So we've been doing that for a few days. What haven't we been learning in doing that? See, as long as we have a fixed object, 
which we start with and come back to, like the breath, and a set of uh, rather explicit instructions, it's pretty straightforward. It could be like laboratory instructions, or to some degree putting together an erector set or equipment that you buy in a, uh, a shop. It's follow the breath, mind wanders, come back. Pretty straightforward. But there's controlling going on because we have to remember that the breath is really important. We have to keep coming back to it. There are a lot of issues around that. And so the center, a center known as me, is kept strong in that approach. Now even that approach, if you persistently go through it, will cut through the center, I think. What we're moving to is, I feel, more in the direction of letting go of the center, of decentralizing the controlling faculty, namely me, which is the meditator. And the meditator is the biggest problem in meditation. If it weren't for the meditator, there would be some meditation happening here. And it's hard to, maybe impossible, to avoid that step because we're all encouraged to be meditators. The chief one is right in back of me, up there. Perfect posture. He never moves, to my knowledge. Never does walking meditation, doesn't go to eat, doesn't even go to the bathroom. 24 hours a day, right there. And we're all, in our small way, trying to approximate that. It's a self-consciousness. Um, which is no different than any other form of self-consciousness that we've had in our attempts to improve ourselves, to become. It's ambition. We could call it spiritual, we could call it dharmic, but there is still that self-centered entity that is striving to get somewhere. Uh, And at the beginning, it's quite strong, and it's very... uh, as you know, if you're coming into interviews, interested in signs that you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong or it's a good meditation or a bad meditation or what does this lead to anyway and why am I here? So there's a lot of concern and calculation and a need for encouragement and to be reminded or to be pointed out to in the first place, why are we here? What do you get out of it? And so that dynamic is alive as long as you have... uh, specific object to come back to. It's a home. And that's, of course, the power of it. That's the beauty of it. The breath is recurrent. It's always going on. And it's a very wonderful, natural home. And what we're moving into next is to develop a homeless home, which is another way of saying to be at home wherever we are. Whereas if the only way we can be at home is by paying attention to the breath, that seems to be rather limiting in life, running around following our breath all the time. Because there's a lot going on in life. And it would be nice if we could just be at home wherever we find ourselves. Or when we're thrown out of our home, there we are, home again. We can't be thrown out of a home because everything is home. this homeless home. In the next stage of the meditation instructions, I feel it becomes less technique It still has a, 
a, a practice uh, feel to it. And it's still, particularly if you're hearing it for the first time or even for the hundredth time, it may still have uh, sound like it's a technique. And yet more and more as you do it, and I've been doing it for years, it becomes less and less of a technique and more of a, it's more artful. Or I don't know what it is. I don't have words for it. But uh, what we're going to be doing in a few moments is to let go of the breath and simply to sit with no agenda, no particular object to attend to. So we've been with the breath now, some of you, for a week. And in a few moments, I'm going to suggest it's all right. Just sit still and pay attention to what's happening. And the breath is no better or worse than anything else. It's just the breath. And what will we attend to then? Well, I don't know. Whatever life provides in the next moment. Did anyone feel any anxiety at that? You mean I can't hold on to the breath? I've just been learning how to... Anyone feel a little nervousness with that? Okay, if you do, that would be what you would pay attention to. There is the fact that... Um, my God, there's no breath to hang on to. Where do I go? I mean, what do I look at? What do I listen to? Well, you listen to that, because that's what's happening. So it's an extension of what we've been learning, but only now we're throwing away, in a sense, we're throwing away the water wings or the the training wheels on a two-wheeler bicycle, which was the breath, a kind of support, something that we can stabilize our attention with, and no, it's recurrent. We can always come back to it. And it's, it's wonderful that we have it. And we will be using it again a lot. It's not that we're through with it or we've outgrown it. It's just that I would like for us to get a taste of something else, and then each person at their own pace can attempt to use this approach. Why call it free attention? Because there are no rules. Your mind is free. All, the only rule is to pay attention to what's happening now, in this moment. Stick to the present. Bring awareness, which we've been developing. It's not different. But now bring it to what is most vivid, what's most distinct, whatever is most compelling. And you don't have to figure that out. In other words, we'll be told that. I mean, each moment tells you what it is. Now, for that to happen, and here's where something, uh, something different begins to accompany these instructions, at least for some people. If it's not for you, don't worry about it. You, it may or may not happen. It comes very close to certain um, attitude that is expressed in, in uh, many religions, having to do with surrender, also having to do with faith. It can. Okay, the instructions in a few moments will be simple enough. It will be to just sit and to pay attention to whatever is there. Uh, it'll also be suggested that, to help you get a feeling for it, you not reach out for anything. Because what is it you would be reaching out? That means you have some opinion, some view as something is more important than something else. So if anything is, is to be attended to, let it make the first move. Let it tell you. So you become like a photographic plate. Totally 100% receptive. No fear about there being a shortage of objects or experience or consciousness. Or Don't worry about it. Let life tell you what 
to know, because it will from moment to moment. So we're, we're beginning to develop a kind of mind that is listening, listening with your whole heart and your whole body, but not listening to anything in particular, not listening for anything in particular. It's a kind of waiting, but it's a waiting without waiting. In other words, what are we waiting for? Nothing in particular. We're just waiting. We're just receiving. We're just right there. Now, whenever anyone gives instructions about this non-doing or just sitting, you can't help but color it. And I'll just give you a sense of that. Uh, I've gotten different versions of these instructions, and I have my own. And each one will probably influence your mind somewhat. But if we know that, then perhaps it can become closer to just you letting go, surrendering to each moment. I've gotten these instructions in, um, in one context, one monastic context, where an analogy was used, and it was a couple of them. One was, it's as if you're in a forest, and there's somebody out to kill you. You don't know where this person is. They might be behind you, to the right or left, or they might be in front of you. And you're making your way through the forest with total attention, panoramic, all-inclusive attention, because any sound might be a sign that that person is coming to kill you. So do you see it's not located on a particular object? It's not the breath or anything else, that mantra. It's just attention, and it has no locus. There's no inside, there's no outside. You're attending to yourself. There's no, there's no nothing. You're just, it's just attention. But if you notice, it's putting a, it has a certain angle, a certain attitude accompanying it. Somebody's out to kill you and there's danger, and that's why you're attending. That has a certain consequence for the mind. In that same monastery, the way in which uh, we did this practice, you would sit for only a half an hour, and tremendously intense. In other words, it was said to us, if you weren't wringing wet with sweat, and it had nothing to do with the season, at the end of that half hour, you weren't really doing it. So that was somewhat different than what I'm suggesting. It's sort of uh, danger and full attention to danger with every ounce of attentiveness you could have, like a crisis, like your life is at stake. And you can only sustain that for a short period of time. That's one way. Another way, uh, similar, an image used is that you're in a duel and you're facing your enemy and you're totally attentive to your enemy, but you also hear all the sounds and you see the, uh, other, the people watching the duel. But if you move for a second, you could get killed. Okay, those are one kind. There's another approach which is a little softer, a lot softer, and that ha- that's the faith a faith model, and the instructions might be something like, we're all Buddhas right now. Each one of us has Buddha nature. Each one of us right at this moment is as perfect as we'll ever be. Our original nature is here, right in this hall. So just relax. Just sit and know that there's no place to to go to. You're already enlightened. 
Each one of us is already enlightened. Now, the mind doesn't know that. So the mind is going to behave as if feverishly, you know, trying to get this and get that and reassure itself and worry about if it's doing right and all the things that minds do. And you just sit and relax and hear this poor misguided mind that doesn't know that it's enlightened go nuts, you know, trying to get something that it doesn't need because you already have it. And so if you have deep faith, whether it's in the Buddha or a particular teacher or you might just have it. Who knows where it comes from? You just, you trust, you have faith. And you sit there and it can be a lot more relaxed, a lot less striving, uh, not trying to get anywhere. And sometimes it can be quite hilarious if you accept this frame of reference. When you see it's really true, the mind is like a four-year-old just feverishly trying to make something of itself, get somewhere, and then worry about not doing it and pick itself up and start all over again. And you just sit in a state of total faith and relaxation, watching all this unnecessary effort, you know. It can be quite hilarious and can take you deep. Now, if you have deep and natural faith, that might be good. Many of us don't. The modern world is not, at this point, uh, famous for authentic spiritual faith. And I'm not talking about certain kinds of fervor, which if you press beneath them, I don't think it's genuine faith, but just desperation or fanaticism or some kind of a, of a belief. That's not what's being suggested by the, this style of teaching. I feel closer to that myself than the first. But life has both. What I'd like to suggest as an attitude is one of um, just knowing. If we had to put it into a question, the question would be, what is this? In other words, what is happening right now? More the mind of discovery. But it's not thought. So you're sitting back and there's no, no agenda. We're not with the breath or trying to get back to the breath or trying to get anywhere. We're learning how to be where we already are. We're learning how to get from A to A. And the question, what is this? Just for a moment, hear it. Even say it to yourself, what is this? It's very powerful. If you ask it about anything, and I think it's powerful because we don't really know what anything is, ultimately. Maybe you do. I don't. And when you look very carefully and really are honest, what is anything? And I don't mean long verbal explanations. When you listen carefully to them, they're not fulfilling. They're just a bunch of words. And sometimes that's called don't know or beginner, beginner's mind or as innocence. This, what is this, can sometimes strip away a lot of the encrustations of familiarity. or the routinization. We've been doing things uh, and been conditioned so many years, over and over and over again. We have all kinds of things are colored a certain way, and we don't see things in a fresh way. And sometimes just asking, what, you follow, the breath happens. Let's say the breath comes in. It's no longer privilege, remember. If it just naturally captures your attention, fine. In words, it would be, what is a breath? 
Again, it's not thinking, I have to speak to you in words, but it's more real interest, real interest in what's happening. So I'm not assuming uh, faith, I'm not assuming that you believe that you're perfect or that you have Buddha nature, because you may not. In fact, the odds are you don't. Okay, so we're kind of moving slowly, kind of starting around the periphery and getting to this core activity of just sitting still and, and doing nothing. No calculation, no scheming, no goals. Just learning the art of doing absolutely nothing with total passion and total interest. Can we do it? Why don't we try it for a few moments? It'll be short, just five or ten minutes. simply because it is there, no other reason needed. As you begin to notice what's there, you can also see that it leaves and becomes something else in consciousness. And so now the mind, in order to carry out these instructions of just allowing whatever is there to happen with no particular direction, no motive other than the attention, becomes a kind of surrender. Perhaps surrendering any words that you might have about why you came here or why you sit. Surrender to what? To God? To Buddha nature? Those are just words. To life, also words, but what is at hand that we can trust, independent of our conviction and opinions, is that at this moment each one of us exists. No question about it. We just exist, each one of us, right now. And that existence continuously manifests itself. The energy keeps becoming something else from moment to moment. So we're surrendering to simply the process, 
to use words, the best I can do is the process of life itself, of our own mind and body, allowing it to tell its own story, not necessarily in words. In fact, more and more, it will be less and less in words. And everything is welcome, opening our heart to ourselves. No more secrets from ourselves. All these many pacts that we've kept, little compartments, places where we've gotten hurt, and don't want to, we don't want to know about those places. So we keep a secret from ourselves. A lot of energy tied up in those secrets. Wasted. Things that happened 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, still festering, still controlling us today. Tragic. Has nothing to do with the present. And yet it reinstates itself over and over again. In allowing everything to turn up and be attended to with care and attention, in doing nothing, in having no agenda, we're providing the mind with an invitation. It's as if we just have given up trying to make ourselves over into some perfect being, trying to control the breath, get back to the breath, trying to be attentive. Very tiring. Trying to be a good spiritual person. And out of exhaustion, we just fall over and just sit here with straight posture, of course. And give up because the mind is ungovernable. And just sit quietly with great interest. And let the mind and the body do all the work. The less we do, the more we come to know. When we do something like this, now with attention having no boundaries, no inside or outside, a sound perhaps a half a mile away is as welcome as an inner thought or feeling. So the inside-outside boundary starts to melt. It was made by thought in the first place. Me and you.
many of us on various spiritual paths are oriented towards universal love. How can we love universally if we don't love ourselves? How can we fully love ourselves if there are still areas that we reject that are not eligible to fully be? And so these instructions of no instructions give permission to the mind to begin to empty itself. And we resist it, we tighten up, and we become aware of that too. Everything is absorbed into the practice. in beginning to learn how to let go of control. The center that we've worked so hard to create begins to lose its seeming solidity, becomes decentralized because it doesn't make the decisions now as to what to attend to. It just allows life itself to decide. There's just attention.
What is this? Wherever you are at this moment, what is this? Without words. had a, a brief sample of something you can do more of during the week to come. And we can also talk about how advisable it is for you to do a lot of it or a little of it. It really depends on how settled your mind is. And if you feel an affinity, if you're drawn in this direction. Just uh, another point about it so there's no uh, misunderstanding and then we can have some questions if there are any. Free attention, sometimes called choiceless awareness. It's in two senses that it's choiceless. One, in that the attention is non-judgmental. That is, we're not choosing one thing over and above another thing. Oh, I like this, I want it. I don't like this, I'll push it away. And if we find ourselves making choices, then we bring attention to that itself. And it's choiceless in the sense that there's no agenda. That is, we're just sitting, allowing whatever wants to present itself to do so. Now, strictly speaking, it isn't choiceless awareness, and it isn't true free attention. How could it be where I'm telling you to do it? And you're making a choice to try to be choiceless. But where are we going to start? I don't know. I haven't figured out any other way than we're, we're close to the edge. But the real choicelessness or the real free attention is something that ripens. And I don't know how long it will take if you have that question on your mind. That's coming from a place that's very different than the spirit of this meditation, as you can imagine. Maybe tomorrow, maybe 10 years from now when the mind settles into itself and it becomes a way of life to just live with uh, kind of the mind of discovery, attentiveness. So we're approximating it. We're approximating a mind that is free, a mind that is not concerned with choices, at least during this sitting. And we're trying not to try, which is a contradiction. And the first time that I ever had even a glimmer of what this was about was during a sitting at a retreat much like this somewhere else. And the bell rung, so the official sitting was over. And the instructions were similar to what we were doing. Of course, I was trying to do it, trying not to try or trying to just be choiceless. And I was getting a headache from so much not trying. 
And then as soon as the bell rang, of course, the official sitting meditation was over, and so I didn't have to pay attention, and suddenly it started to happen. Just letting it all be exactly what it was. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.